from the marketing side, it's always a good a, a good indicator when you sort of say this is the problem and you see people lean in, right? And I think sometimes, again, personal experience in the blue ocean world, you say this is the problem and you see people lean back, meaning they're sort of contemplating what you've just told them as a possibility of the future versus a, a leaning in, my God, yes, I was dealing with this this morning or yesterday morning and it's a nightmare. Um, so there's that sort of lean in, lean back, almost involuntary motion you get <laughs> when you yeah. state what the problem you're trying to solve. You're listening to Paris Talks Marketing. My goal with this podcast is to dig deeper into digital marketing success than any other marketing podcast out there, to reveal the growth marketing strategies and tactics that are working today, empowering growth at amazing companies and organizations. Keep listening as I interview founders, CEOs, and marketing leaders from all around the world, primarily from companies in the tech and software as a service industry. Now, on with the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. Today, I'm with Brad Hips, and Brad is the co-founder of a company called Socratic, which is really disrupting the software task management space. He's got a background mostly in software engineering, and about 10 years ago, he transitioned into the marketing side of things. And he's worked for companies such as HP and Accenture. He's got an extensive background and we're really excited to, to see what he's building at Socratic. So Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paris. And thanks for not calling my switch a move to the dark arts from engineering to marketing. Sometimes I think it may have been, but yes, it's good to be here. Oh, I would, I would never refer to marketing as the dark arts, unless we're talking about black hat SEO, which I don't think really is a thing anymore. And I never did that, full uh, disclosure. That's good. Yeah. So, Brad, let's just start with Socratic. You've been, you've, you founded it about two years ago. Um, where are you with that? And what are you trying to do with Socratic? Yeah, I think the, uh, let's see, the nutshell is that I think if you look at this task management space, issue management, whatever you call it, first of all, it's a very crowded space. You've got on the software side, you have Jira, which is sort of the 800 pound gorilla. Um, but there are lots and lots of tools out there. There's the Asanas and the Mondays and the long list of tools that are out there. And I think for my co-founder, Nolan and I, the thing that always frustrated us uh, as longtime Jira sufferers was that, uh, you know, the way these task tools work, they are built and intended to be sort of your system of record for, for all the work you're doing, right, on the engineering side. And so invariably what that means is you're spending a lot of time figuring out what the work is, you're breaking it into its logical piece parts, you're entering it into the system, and then you start the work and you're kind of trying to manage the work through the system. And if you're you know, a sprint-based team, you're packing sprints with it. And you know, it's all the standard stuff that you do kind of in any one of these systems. The, the core frustration we have is that for all the work you seem to do for these tools, they don't do much for you beyond sort of manage the basic inventory of work. So you know, when you're trying to understand, hey, is something on track or how long is this going to take to finish? Or, you know, are our people just totally overloaded? Like, what's our workload balance like? Like these sort of these bigger questions, you're kind of on your own to go dig and sort and query databases and build spreadsheets and try to get answers to those questions. So the whole idea with Socratic was, can we just reverse that dynamic? Can we build a system in which you do the bare minimum? 
the basic stuff you do in any one of these systems, define your work and put it into sprints and so on and so forth. And then the system will pay close attention to all your activity data and try to turn that into useful intelligence that answers some of these bigger questions that we have. We get them better or worse, faster or slower. Do we have any capacity mm-hmm. in the system? All these bigger, bigger picture questions. Mm-hmm. I, I sometimes at the end of that spiel, I'll say that really what Socratic aims to be like is almost like a fitness tracker for teams, right? You think about the way a fitness tracker works. You put it on your wrist. You don't have to sit there and constantly tap at it and tell it what you just did or what you're doing, right? It's going to passively observe how much you walk, how much you sleep. And at a certain point, it's going to make an observation based on the data It's to say, hey, you got another hour and take a walk around the block, you're going to feel better. Well, mm-hmm. from the Socratic side, we thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could do something like that for teams? So that's the aspiration. Uh, I love that analogy. And um, it, we, we spoke a little bit in the pre-show about the decision to either go for let's say build a better mousetrap. Some people say that's a red ocean or Uh the blue ocean, which is just, we are going to, we're going to do something so new and innovative. Yeah. Uh, No, nobody's heard of it before, but it's going to blow everybody's mind. You went the mousetrap, the better mousetrap route. And why, why did you decide to go that route rather than take the other path? It's a good question. So I think let's stick, let's stick with the cliches we all know, whether it's red ocean, blue ocean, or greenfield, brownfield, whatever, whatever phrase we're going to use. If we stick with that, for a moment. So, so from a startup perspective, I've done both. My, my guess is a lot of your listeners have probably done both as well. Uh, my, my, uh, I'm going to meet our red ocean, green ocean cliche with another cliche, which I just want to happen to kind of embrace, which is the old notion that at the end of the day, you want to be selling aspirin, not vitamins. Um, and the advantage of these oh, love that. mature spaces, red ocean spaces is those are obviously big enough with, with large enough problems that solutions have entered to fix. And so what that tells you obviously is, okay, this is a known problem space. There's a known headache. That's an upside. Downside obviously is, yeah, there are also known solutions and some of them are quite big. But I think from a, from a go-to-market perspective, it's a distinct advantage in the sense that you don't have to t- take up a lot of oxygen explaining to your audience why this is a problem. They're already sort of there. Right. And chances are they've already either got a solution or they're entertaining a solution. So I think those are distinct advantages. Obviously, we can talk about disadvantages in a moment, but those are distinct advantages on the sort of the blue ocean side. More often than not, at least in my own experience, you're you wind up in a world where you're almost selling vitamins rather than aspirin. And what I mean by that is you're in a world where you're saying, hey, this big new change is coming. Uh, like an example from my own life is we were, I was part of a team at a company called Accelerator and Accelerator sold a mobile development platform before mobile was everywhere, right? It was kind of one of the first players, uh, in the mobility space. And while obviously what's nice about that is, you know, people are interested, they know this is a big topic, so they're, they're going to entertain you. They're going to take your call probably. But when it comes time to them, then asking themselves, well, is this a hair and fire problem for me? it's still kind of in the future, right? It's still kind of like something that's coming. It's not something that they themselves or their bosses are screaming at them about today. And so that's why I say it's almost more of a vitamin pitch, right? You're going to put yourself in a good position to be ready for this big change that is absolutely coming. Um, So that's, I think, the disadvantage in the kind of, if you will, the blue ocean scenarios. It tends to be a little bit more vitamin oriented. Um, whereas in the red ocean where the problem is known, it tends to be more aspirin oriented. Mm -hmm. Um, now the disadvantages are very apparent, right? It's called a red ocean for a reason, right? You already got players in there. Some of them are quite big. Some of them have solved it in a certain way. So the job for you is to be like, 
clearly, well, how the hell are you different, right? You can't just be, uh, you, you can't just be sort of lipstick on what I already have. This has to be truly something that I think is net new. Um, and then on the, on the blue ocean side, it's less about, oh, I'm, I'm knife fighting with all these competitors. It's much more about like, how do I convict a customer that now is the time to act? How do I convict them that they don't have a month or a quarter or six months or a year to yeah. act? Because create, create the pain. Still, yeah, I have still. to create the pain. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, where you are is that you're, you're not creating the pain, but you're trying to answer to that pain along with a lot of other people. Um, whereas, yeah, the blue ocean guys have to convince people that they have a problem. These are two, yeah. two distinct it, challenges. It's always, I mean, we, from, from the, from the, from the marketing side, it's always a good, uh, a, a good indicator when you sort of say, this is the problem and you see people lean in. Right. And I think sometimes, again, personal experience in the blue ocean world, you say, this is the problem and you see people lean back, meaning they're sort of contemplating what you've just told them as a possibility of the future versus a, a leaning in my God, yes, I was dealing with this this morning or yesterday morning, and it's a nightmare. Um, so there's that sort of lean in, lean back, almost involuntary motion you get <laughs> when you yeah. state what the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. And so you're you're about two years in now. Uh, is that right, Brad? That's right. Yep. That's, that's so where, right. where are you? How many, approximately how many customers do you have? And so, where are you in that? Yeah, so good question. So this is, maybe this is interesting or useful to your listeners. I think... From the from the Socratic side, uh, so we raised a, a I guess I, I don't even know what it's called these days. I guess it was a pre-seed round uh, in 2020. Uh, in fact, we were having conversations uh, with various VCs right as the pandemic landed on on all of us, which was which was fun. Um, and what we did with that with that sort of primary round more or less that first year of the company was to build a uh, click through prototype of socratic basically of this app that we wanted to create and i think this was i mean we can pull this apart a little bit this was important to us for a few, for a few reasons one of the things that's absolutely true back to what we were just talking about if you're going to a mature space where people sort of have preconceived notions about Oh, task management, it looks like this and this is what it does. It's hard just with PowerPoint and words to say, yeah, but can you imagine a world where it could do these things instead, right? Where we could take your activity data and we can turn it into useful intelligence that you could then look at and take action on. That's a very abstract theoretical idea. And for us, we felt strongly that we have to have uh, a version of the thing we're going to go build in enough detail that we could actually show it and explain it and talk about it. And at the end of the day, get reactions to, right? And and really in that, the, the whole effort of that, you know, that first, well, as I say, sort of six months to a year of using that click-through prototype, we were really trying to do two things. First of all, we were trying to verify that our audience was who we thought they were, right? This idea of like really being smart about what's your core initial segment and and trying to be as, as, as focused on that segment as humanly possible. So a big part of that is discovering, do we have the right segment or is it, is it in fact the kinds of folks we think it is? And then the other piece, obviously, is just getting them to look at it and say, thumbs up, thumbs down, right? Do you buy mm-hmm. what we're, what the approach we're going to take, or do you think it's fundamentally flawed uh, in some way? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is getting a little bit further into the tactics, but, you know, one of the things that was essential as part of that, that job of getting it in front of people and talking them through it and getting the reactions was 
we always tried to end those calls with the question, how would this work in your organization or something in that lines? You want to make it as concrete to them as possible. Otherwise you get into academic, looks cool, could be nice, good Mm -hmm. luck, right? You're trying to get it, you're trying to make it very pointed. Like, would you use this? How would it work in your org? Because that's where the rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to your broader question, that's really what we did for the first, the better part of the, well, I'd say it probably wound up being sort of six months of that. And then from there, having taken all the learnings from those six months of kind of co- customer conversations, then, then beginning to build. Um, mm-hmm. And so to take us to kind of where we are now, we spent most of 2021 sourcing a small group of design partners. I think we landed up with about five or six design partners. Uh, so these were customers who are obviously going to use Socratic live in the wild, real world, you know, building their business around it and then just participating, giving us feedback. We like this. We wish it did that. Could you add that? What does this mean? We don't use this. All the kind of feedback you want and really sort of, you know, if you will, bolting it down and really feeling like the the app is in a good place. And then at the end of, we're in 2022, at the end of 2021, we launched a public beta. And really all that means for us is you can come sign up, and express interest. And then we sort of vet as people come in, we try to identify who are the users we think would be true power users of this and that we want to engage with. So we're in some sort of twilight between design partners where it's a very, very constrained set and, you know, full GA where anybody can use it. And I, you know, how long we're in that interim period will probably depend on how big, how much feedback, because obviously by the time you go general with something like this, you just want to be convicted that like we've nailed the data we show, we've nailed its feature functions, all of that. Yeah. That's a long way to answer your question. Did you That's get into that? So do you, all, do, you, do you think that you've achieved product market fit? And if not, how far out is that? So that's a great question. So I think, um, so my, my glib, but also truthful answer is, I don't think you have PMF until people are writing you checks. Um, mm-hmm. And we're still pre-revenue. We have not started charging for this. We have not asked for money. Um, mm-hmm. So the best proxies I have for PMF in our space is, organic growth within our design partners, which has been quite high. I think we've more than, I don't know, tripled if I look at the last numbers of folks that started using it and the way it's kind of spread around the organization. So that's encouraging. The other thing that we did, I don't know if you've seen this, but the, the, one of the co-founders of Superhuman wrote a really great piece on this, this notion of how do you discover product market fit? Maybe you know this, or maybe you've talked about it on other podcasts. I don't know. Um, I, I have actually last week. Are you, are you referring to, to Garov? Yes, I am. Um, I interviewed I, him last week on the. Oh, on, you did. Okay, and so maybe he talked about this, and and if he did, then everybody should stop listening to this and go listen to that. But um, no, no, I please, really like, please go on. Yeah, because he, I I think I know where you're going here. But his his view on product market fit is is brilliant. Well, he, he what he did, which I really liked and appreciated, is he boiled it down to a methodology. And so, and you can find this if you if you sort of I'm sure if you Google you know superhuman and product market fit, you'll find the piece he wrote. But he boiled it down to a methodology which consists of not just a survey but how they then from their side pulled apart that survey to use it to evaluate a how close they are to product market fit and b if they were not as close as they'd like to be what are the actionable things they need to do and what's really smart about their approach is just that that this 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 notion of achieving product market fit which is so always so gauzy and kind of hand wavy and people kind of hem and haw about we we might have it we don't have it you know they've come up with a methodology so that's also a methodology we've been using ourselves um, and I I can't repeat it all here but your your listeners can go kind of look it up um, and that's also been productive because as I say it sort of it gives you it gives you prescriptions for if you're not as close as you'd like to be sort of things on the marketing side it might mean as well as things on the product side yeah. 
I'm going to drop that article right here in the, in the chat, and I will uh, ref, we'll refer to this in the show notes later. Perfect. Um, in fact, uh, well, Gaurav, Gaurav was the, well, the co-founder. Um, he, he's not a co-founder, but he was the one that I interviewed about this. But the article was written by, by the founder and the CEO, Raul Vora. Right. And one of the things that they asked in this survey was, how would you feel if you could no longer use the product? Yes, and then they would say, "I would be very disappointed, or moderately disappointed, or neutral, or you know, whatever." Yes, and really, the people over time, more and more people were saying, "Very disappointed," to the you know, leading them to believe that this is this is an essential tool in our toolbox now that we really couldn't we couldn't imagine being without. Yeah, it's so from the PMF side, there was a, and I'm I'm, all, I'm forgetting names and predecessors, but the person sort of established the benchmark of uh, I think it was, and I th- I should know off the top of my head, but I think the benchmark is around you want forty percent saying very disappointed to be convicted of a product market fit. I think that was the number. Yeah, I think I think, I think that's was. the number. That mm-hmm. was a figure that was established prior to this piece, and what this piece does, which is what makes it so helpful, is it sort of says, all right, if you're not there right? Mm-hmm. What now are some tactical things that, that maybe you could do? And, and again, some of the, some of the subsequent, yeah. sur- it's a very short survey. I think it's maybe five questions, yeah. but some of the subsequent things that you do, uh, if you're not at that 40%, which yeah, look as a startup, it's unlikely you will be right out of the gates. It's unlikely you'll, you'll be there. Um, so mm-hmm. then it's just a question of, all right, what, what, what seem to be the things that are holding us back from that 40% threshold and what can we do with that? What can we do with that data? So high, highly recommend a reading. And is that in your opinion, uh, Brad, is that often an exercise in simplifying the product and focusing down on the the feature sets that are really the ones that are that are the pain the the pain problem solvers? So this is this is a key point, and there's probably a lot of ways you can go with this, but but I do think that um, you know the, I mean, if, if I think about our own product development on the Socratic side, one of the one of the phrases we use internally is we don't want a lot of surface area to the product. Um, and, and specifically to our space, to the task management space, because it's so mature, you know, some of these older long in the tooth systems, I mean, it's feature bloat doesn't even describe the half of it, right? They do, mm-hmm. they're sort of like an ice cream topper and a floor wax. They do everything. <laughs> um, and, and obviously like part of that is just a product of success and uh, they've gone everywhere and done everything. But if, yeah, if you're a startup coming in, from a from a from a usability approachability perspective, you want to we want to minimize the surface area of the app. There shouldn't be twenty seven clicks and nineteen hidden doors that reveal something else. So so that's an important for sure. Like I would say, app development discipline. But I think maybe the broader to your broader point. At the end of the day, what you've got to achieve is focus in the segment you are selling to. Without that, you are simply dead on arrival. Right? If you're still in a world where you feel as though maybe we'll try this and we'll try that and we'll, maybe we should add that. And, you know, that's just death. It's death from a product mm-hmm. development perspective and it's death from a marketing perspective. It's impossible to message if you're not quite yet sure who it is you're talking to. The Bible on this whole topic is, is Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm, right? And mm-hmm. with crossing the chasm, Jeffrey Moore's whole point was he's like, you know, he, he kind of had this martial analog, but he's like, you have to establish a beachhead and that beachhead should be as small and as defensible as possible. And only when you feel you own that beachhead, do you begin to advance on adjacent beachheads. Um, and so figuring out what your beachhead is, what that core segment is, is kind of essential um, to, mm-hmm. to, to any startup. Because it, then it, all, all good things come from that kind of focus. Good things yeah. come in terms of the message. Good things come in terms of the, the stories you're going to tell. Good things come in terms of the references you're going to be able to build. 
Uh, and then good things come from the product because the product is really responding mm -hmm. to a fairly, fairly, you know, uh, specific set of pains people want solved. Yeah. So Brad, then what is Socratic's beachhead? So I'll tell you right now what it is. It, you know, we have a single slide, like any good, you know, startup trying to prove it knows what it's doing, right? We have an ideal customer profile. It's one slide. I was never big on these persona slides. I felt like we spent, I don't know, felt like there's a period of like years in marketing where we felt like, oh, we got all these persona slides with these fake names and what these people do. And I just never got anything out of them. But I do think it absolutely like a single slide in which you try to make explicit to yourself. This is who we think our ideal customer profile is. And for us, it became it, it, the, the language is essentially along the lines of it. it's a performance oriented engineering leader, which I know sounds kind of eh, that sounds a little academic. But mm -hmm. really what that means is it's engineering leaders for whom getting better data to understand how well engineering is doing is a hair on fire problem. Yeah. And these people are absolutely out there. So they're reporting, um, they're reporting to their superiors on the productivity of their team. Yeah, exactly. They are, I mean, just a, a little, this may be more inside baseball than folks care about, but you think about the reality of software engineering in nine tenths of any company of any size right now is that you go into an executive session, whether it's a monthly or a quarterly, and you've got marketing and marketing's talking about funnel conversion rates and trends over time. And sales is talking about pipeline to ratio and how that's trending up or down and you know, they, these very specific things that they're looking at and trending. And then it's sort of engineer's turn to go. And as, as one, you know, engineering leader put it to me, I'm the guy with the bullet points, right? My slide is mm -hmm. all bullet points. Um, maybe I talk about sort of the defects we closed. Maybe I talk about a couple of things we released, mm -hmm. but that's kind of the report. So, so it's, it's the, it's from the Socratic perspective, it's finding the folks who say, this is ridiculous, right? Like I am the person who has more data maybe than anybody else in the company. I've probably helped these other business units create the systems that mm -hmm. service all this data that tells them how they're doing. And, you know, here mm -hmm. I am the, the cobbler's kid with no shoes of my own. Um, so finding those folks who are convicted that this is ridiculous, that this is still the world I live in, uh, was, has been job one for us. Now, then you want to focus it further because we're a startup. So you want sort of, we sort of said, you know, it's probably engineering teams anywhere between 20 and hundred, because much more than that, we're going to get into lengthy contractual conversations and things like that. We're small, we're trying to be nimble. Um, but th that essentially is our, if you will, our ideal customer profile today. Now, a natural mm -hmm. question would be like, well, Brad, does that really meet your criteria of, of appropriate focus? I would love to focus it further, right? I would love to have, I don't know, a geographical thing that I've discovered about a customer base. We've had a lot of interest from Canada. So this kind of interests me. Like, all right, should we focus on Canadian companies? You know, I'd love to have obviously a firmographic. Like we've had a lot of interest from security companies. I don't know why, but maybe mm -hmm. security is something that we need to be doing more in or focusing more on. Mm -hmm. So I think this, this winds up being this, you know, the invariable kind of peeling the onions. You start with what you think the core segment is. And then if, with luck holds, you peel it down to something that's even more focused. And we're still a little bit in that peeling phase. Yeah. The first thing that struck me when I just saw some of the visuals on the website is it, I imagine that I was looking at a, um, at a CRM report that would show that this is our quota for the quarter. And, you know, it's a straight line from, from zero to X. And then you have the, the wavering line of the actuals saying we're ahead of schedule. We're below schedule. We're, we're ahead. We're below. And we're, we're oscillating around that line. And I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? Because that's that kind of looks like you know what, what a sales leader would show that we're on track. We're well, going to hit quota. You, you're you're putting your finger on something that's actually important because I think one of the challenges, one of the reasons that engineer, I, at least I, 
if it's not the reason, it's a big reason that engineering maybe is still mostly in a little bit of a world of bullet points and hand waving is that what is good in engineering, at least historically, has not always been as clear as what is good in marketing or sales or finance, right? When you take those mm-hmm. disciplines, you have a true north. Your true north is revenue or it's lead conversion rate or it's profit and loss. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a very mm-hmm. crisp true north. And so you can kind of bend your data to sort of figure out how close or far from true north you are. I think quite rightly on the engineering side, engineers and engineering leaders would point out, hey, it's not as crystal clear what we do. I mean, I've, I've, I've long said, having grown up in engineering, that's one of the things I love about it. Engineering is a lot more creative than it is algorithmic. I think people tend to think of engineering as this being this incredibly like just, you know, people with like the propeller beanies that are just super, super, super quant. And of course you get folks like that, but it, but it is actually far more creative than algorithmic. But I think one of the things you have to do, this is, this is from the Socratic side, one of the things you have to do if you, if you purport to say, hey, we're going to help you use data to understand how well you're working. <laughs> the first question is, well, what does good look like, right? And as I say, in these other disciplines, good is quite clear. And in engineering, I feel like we've sort of overly mystified it. And so our answer to that is to say, look, let's demystify what engineering is after. Engineering's job at its core is to take ideas generated by engineering themselves, generated by the business, take those ideas and turn them into working software. That is what engineering at its core does. It takes ideas and it turns them into working software. No matter what you're building, no matter what your methodology is, your technology, that is at core what engineering does. And what's nice about that is when you sort of demystify it or you try to try to get to the essence of it, you can then say, all right, well, then what looks what is good? Well, good is the more ideas you develop, the more quickly you develop those ideas, the more efficiently they move from idea to delivery, the better Mm -hmm. your engineering. Uh, And Mm -hmm. from there, you can kind of then proceed into, okay, what does that mean for what we should look at and what we should care about and what we should measure? Yeah, and I guess even just the agility of the, the iteration itself is is always a goal, isn't it? For sure. I mean, um, you know, I think I, I think um, like I say, broadly written, I think um, it is easy a little bit, even on the engineering side, to say nothing of the business trying to understand what engineering is doing. It it is certainly easy to get a little bit lost in the weeds with our methods and our process, and you know. Uh, Agile as a, as a movement itself brought a lot of great stuff, but it also brought a lot of like weird things. Like we're going to talk about story points and burn downs, and uh, I, you know, mm-hmm. wait, what is that telling me? What what is this showing? How does this indicate? And and so I say, as 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 I as we thought about, it, we said, all right, we think it's it's not that you. We just think there's a probably a better way via data to take a step back and say, how are we sort of conducting ourselves? And at the end of the day, it's sort of like how smoothly and effectively is the flow (laughs) from idea to working software? How smoothly or effectively is that flow? And if it is rough or it has friction, which invariably you do, why and where? And just help me see that as opposed to the normal world, which is I got to hunt, peck, dig. I have to have been in the right conversation. I have to have asked the right question. I just, I usually don't have data that, that indicates that to me. But I think get back to kind of where we had started, if you're in a world where you where you frame engineering that way, ideas to working software, and you frame it as this question of how well is, is that work flowing, well, now you're in a position, getting back to this example of an executive conversation or talking to the business, you're now in a position where you're having a plain spoken business conversation. 
right? This is the rate at which we turn these ideas into working software. That's sort of our speed. This is how many we did. We, we, the, you know, the request was for a hundred, we did all hundred or we did 90, which is up from having done 80 the, the month or the quarter before. Um, this is how efficiently we work and uh, efficiency has its own things that you care about, which is too much detail for your listeners here. But, but when all those things are sort of trending po- and then I would say importantly as well, the ability to trend that over time, the ability to say, look, our, you know, our average delivery rate was, 10 days last month, but that's down from 12 days the prior month and 15 days the month before that. Now you're in a world where the yeah, non-engineers around the table are kind of saying, okay, They're getting better. Right, yeah. we can follow this. We understand it. This is not, you're coming and talking story points and pull requests. And I don't so know what any of that this stuff is. This is the fitness app telling you that you're getting in better shape. This is, this is the fitness app that is trying to tell you in as plain language as possible. This is what's going here. well, and this is mm-hmm. what you should pay attention to. Exactly. Yeah. So Brad, let's fast forward a year and and assume now that that you're really in in scale up mode. Yep. What's the go to market? How how do you imagine uh getting this to scale um now that you you probably got close to product market fit, you're going to hone in even more. Um Yep. Uh you've got that age-old problem and I've interviewed others on on this podcast with the with the same challenge, which is marketing to, marketing to engineers is not as easy as marketing to other marketers or other non-engineering people, but just walk me through how you imagine the go-to-market, let's say one year out from now. Yeah, I think, well, this, this is where we can make it conversational because we can, we can talk tactics that you see. But uh, so I'll say um, there's, a, there's a few thoughts that come to mind that we've, that we've been paying close attention to. One of, one of the ideas that, that we hold to, I think you had Sanjia on your, your podcast not that long back. I don't know if that's dropped yet or not, but she has this really smart observation about how from, and this is speaking from her experience at Amplitude, how, you know, as a marketer, you really want to pick, try to pick sort of one thing that's going to be your superpower. Right. And this to me, I think is, is an important notion. It's certainly something we're trying to hold to, which is, as you know, better than anyone, there's, it feels like there's a million and one tactics that you can, you, you can sort of explore and pursue from the marketing side. And I feel as though from a marketing side, there's always sort of this like death by indigestion. It's like, oh my God, there's some new channel and some new tweak and some new hack and some new whatever that we're supposed to go do and think and play with. And I think it can get overwhelming. You can kind of get a little paralyzed by like, how much should we be doing? And, you know, Sanji's point is like, look, you just got to pick one thing that you're going to be really great at. You're going to be sort of famous for from a marketing side. And I really like that back to this whole, back to our theme of focus and segment. I really like that as, as for yourself. So I think to, to a little bit more specifically to your question, I think for us, um, what I think we can be quite good at, uh, Knockwood, is um, I think we can be good at, um, we sometimes call it myth busting, but I think we can be good at maybe uh, interrogating a lot of the legacy thinking that's built up in software engineering about how you should work and what work looks like and interrogating that with data to basically to say, well, the productivity data actually says something else. And we can go back to our, our health metaphor again to really kill that one. Right. But it's like, you know, these health things go, we establish something as being, this is the healthy way to live. And then there's sort of new data that says, eh, debunking you know, a myth. Yeah. Carbohydrates, maybe not as great as we thought, whatever it is. I've, I've heard that high, high cholesterol isn't as bad as we once thought it was. Right? Yeah, exactly. You had these things. So I think, I think from a, from a kind of a go to market perspective, one of the opportunities that I think is in front of us is I think that there's fertile territory to basically lift up some of these tried and true things that we've held to mm-hmm. from the engineering side in terms of this is the way you should work. And this is what good work looks like to, to really interrogate those through the lens of data. And when I say mm-hmm. interrogate, it doesn't mean they're all wrong, right? Some of them in fact may hold up, 
Yeah. But what you want to do is to say the data either bear this, bears this out or it does not. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean from a marketing perspective? Well, really what I think it means from a marketing perspective is we want to try to write pieces that are backed by data that hold up and explore and interrogate some of these tried and true principles that we've had in engineering mm-hmm. for a long time. You know, some of these one method versus another, or you should manage this way versus that way. And to try mm-hmm. to use data to actually explore that. What I think, and this is some of this is still a thesis versus proven, right? But what I what mm-hmm. I what I like about that approach is back to your point about like, well, it's you know maybe software engineers and software engineering is hard to, to kind of get into. I actually think there's I've lived this, we've seen it in data, and I've felt it myself. I actually think there's a real hunger for that kind of information. I actually think again, the folks that we'd be interested in talking to, which is I mean those sort of performance oriented leaders, are hungry for man, this just doesn't feel right, right? This 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 way I run things that I've done for 10 years, it just it feels like something is not quite there. It's never really worked. And I, so I think if you can write pieces into that, that, that sort of underscore, yeah, your instinct is right. <laughs> it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And there's a better way. You're in a, you're in a strong place. Um, yeah. That sounds so like you're, you're, you're finding the brand. That's the brand voice, I would say, uh, which... Totally it's a foundational, right. it's a foundational it, piece. The entire is a foundational piece. And you're right. It mm-hmm. absolutely goes to the heart of the voice you want to speak with, which is, yeah. you know, you want to be approachable, but you all, at least from our perspective, um, we, we want to have some level of earned authority, I guess is the way to think about it. Right. Or some mm-hmm. level, some willingness even to say, Hey, we're going to gore some sacred cows, right? These mm-hmm. things that we've held to for a long time, they may not make as much sense as we thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to us, that's, that's an interesting area. And I, Fingers crossed. I think people will be interested in it. And are you are you confident, Brad, that you all will have that either today have or will have that data to really back up those those challenging assumptions? Yes, I am. <clears throat> Part of it is because there simply are just. I mean, again, this is this is probably more more <laughs> more detailed than, than folks care about. But I, I, I think um, if I were to sort of encapsulate engineering over the last twenty years. Um, most of, of what what engineering has invested in and cared about, rightly, rightly, is automation and methodology. We've looked at agile has been a big thing and various flavors of agile and what agile does for the way you work. And lots of fruitful stuff have come out of that. And then from a tooling perspective, all the tooling has really been built around how to how to speed up processes that are otherwise manual right? Mm-hmm. CICD, DevOps, all this stuff has been trying to figure out all these handoffs and things that we've done manually. How do we have better tooling, better integrations that automates all that? To which I say, great. We are all beneficiaries of, of all that work. Having said that, I don't believe, in fact, I'm quite confident that over the next decade, more automation and more process is going to unlock a whole new level of productivity for engineering. The next decade will be about data. It will be about having the data that tells us this works and this doesn't work and knowing that and taking action accordingly. Um, I think automation methodology will be incrementally beneficial to engineering over the next decade. I don't think it stops, It'll, but I think it will, its benefit will be incremental. And where I think the real leap comes is through, is through data. Uh, so that's a sort of a, a, a broad answer to your question but yes, breaking that then down into like, okay, what are the kinds of things that data will show? Yes, I feel quite confident we will be able, 
able to write about that. We've already started it. We've already started. We have a method, you know, it's Socratic. So of course our mm -hmm. blog is called methods and yep. our method section of, of, of the, the, the webpage is really all we have right now. We have the homepage and we have methods because this is fundamental mm -hmm. to, to the way we think about it is us beginning to frame out, Hey, these are the things that we think <clears throat> either this is a better way to work and, or this is a way that some people are working that we think, you know, we need to maybe rethink. Um, mm -hmm. I think that category is actually called myth busting, as I say it. Um, yeah. I also really liked your analogy of the, the tax analogy. So fighting the tax that drains software teams. And yes. I've seen that uh, reference in a couple of other places too. Yes. There so is a lot a hidden, of hidden tax. It, there is a lot of, um, there is a lot of just like in the way we work, there's just a lot on the engineering side. There's just a lot of like, yeah, hidden taxes, invisible taxes that we just don't see. The data doesn't show it. And maybe we think to mention it and maybe we don't. Um, mm -hmm. and this is obviously part of what you want from data is to kind of make that stuff visible to you. Yeah. So cool. it sounds like with, with this, with this, uh, the clarity that you have around the brand voice, the positioning that the next decade, it won't be about productivity gains at this point will be incremental, but, but data will be the key to unlocking next level productivity. Yeah. Um, it sounds like that that's going to be a big from, from a marketing standpoint, there's a lot to talk about, a lot to write about it or produce videos around or podcasts or whatever. Yeah. Are you all planning to make a big, a uh, big investment in content marketing to tell the story? I, it, it, inevitably. And I think it'll take two forms and this is where you, you can chime in and tell me what, <laughs> what sure. you got to see or what your experience is. But, you know, I think if you think about that, that type of, of writing and content in our minds, um, there's a significant chunk of it that just goes to awareness, right? It's just like, oh, I heard about this company that is actually talking about software engineering differently than I've really heard it talked about before. And they're, and they're backing that up with data. It's not just more sort of hand-waving data around mm -hmm. that. So, so again, I, this is aspirational, but our hope is that is really helpful and useful from an awareness perspective. But then the other piece, if we talk in marketing terms, is much lower level funnel, right? You are now mm -hmm. a Socratic user, how are we helping you really achieve whatever that sort of bigger picture stuff was that we were talking about from an awareness perspective? And this is where I think whether it's, you know, university tutorials, things like that, that really sort of pragmatically say, hey, when we show you this in the app, this is what that's telling you. And these are the things we would recommend, you know, maybe looking at or changing. So I think it, I think it, I think it, again, if we do it right, I think it can be effective sort of at that absolute top of funnel. I've never heard of this company, but I'm at least mm -hmm. interested in some of their ideas. And then also very, very tactically, pragmatically, okay, Socratic, it's Tuesday morning. I'm trying to get this sprint going. Like, mm -hmm. what is this app telling me that's going to help me work better today? Um, and us having, you know, had some really nice, you know, short video course, whatever that, that really helps you understand that. So I, I think that's the vision for, for where, where we go with this. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not, that, that, that vision is probably a vision lots and lots and lots of people have, but, but if you were to ask me like, you know, what's the thing that we need to build a superhuman strength in, it's all the stuff I just talked about. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if we're going to have the best, uh, you know, organic social media. I, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend I know a lot about it. Um, but I do know we have to be really smart about having that consistently authoritative voice that talks about this works, keep doing this, this is mm -hmm. a dead legacy approach stuff. Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you, what do you see? You work with tons of companies. What, what are, yeah. what are the things that as companies, as companies are sort of in our state, they're emerging from mm -hmm. private beta to public beta to GA in the not too distant future. 
What, mm-hmm. what in your own mind do, do you think some of the tactics sure. are like in that I'll, journey? I'll tell you what's, what's brewing in my, in my head right now. I'm wondering um, whether to what extent you're going to go a product-led growth route and just get the product into the hands of people, let's say yep. for freemium, free trial, yep. um, and try to scale that and just get it into as many ha- good qualified hands as possible versus steering the, the more traditional B2B SaaS route is steering people into, into sales demos, high touch. Um, let me ask you that. How do you see that going? I mean, do you want to do both or do you want to lean That's more a, on one or the other? That's a great question. I can't believe we've gotten to this point in the podcast and PLG has not been uttered. So I know. Shame, and usually I'm the one that shame on both of us. We're forcing both it in lose, quick. Both going to lose our jobs. Um, <laughs> the shorter answer is yes. Of course, we envision this as being uh, fundamentally product led from a growth perspective. And a lot of that, it was also sort of predefined by the space we're going into. The way these task tools work is inevitably you go to a site, you sign up. And for free, you simply start using it and, you know, deciding whether it's for you. So, so that's a, absolutely a, a core part of, of what the motion will be. Mm-hmm. But the, the reason I think this is, this is a, a, an interesting question versus just a canned answer from our side is, you know, like, okay, Socratics, you've done this private beta and now you're doing this public beta. Like, why? Why don't you just throw open the doors to everyone right off the bat? And one of the key reasons I've talked about, like, you know, we really want to work closely with our partners right now and make sure this software is doing all the stuff we want it to do. Mm-hmm. But I think another key core reason for us is we are interested right now in going after bigger organizations that might otherwise be a, a motion that we wouldn't try for another year, maybe even two, right? Because I think I feel mm-hmm. as though the typical PLG is you sort of you, you scoop up maybe smaller outfits that can kind of jump in and start working. And then from mm-hmm. there, you begin to sort of try to go after a slightly bigger game. I think for us to be convicted that Socratic can do the things we want it to do, it has to be battle tested in larger organizations. I'm very happy if 10, 15, 20 person engineering teams find value. Of course, that's essential to us. But mm-hmm. to us, the real acid test for what we're trying to do is if a 50 person, 75 person, 100 person to say nothing about 500 person engineer team say, this is doing something different for us. And mm-hmm. as you can expect, the, the challenges and the questions you're trying to answer just get more involved and more complex at that size. So for us, mm-hmm. a big part of this sort of public beta period is, us actively reaching out to organizations of that size and seeing if we can persuade them to try Socratic and see why it's different from the way from the way they've worked. So it's a long-winded way of saying, I suppose it's a long-winded way of saying in some ways we are deliberately delaying the PLG part mm-hmm. while we explore working with these larger organizations. Um, and I think once we're convicted that, yeah, we've worked with enough of these large organizations. By the way, it's not going to be hundreds, right? It's going to be, you know, five or 10, maybe larger organizations. Mm-hmm. Once we're convicted that they're seeing real value, well, then we're going to feel really good that if you're 20, 15, 10, you're going to see massive value as well. Mm-hmm. Um, this For us, for our market, this is an important question we've asked a lot. And yeah. you know, inevitably, we have backers who are like, when, when are you releasing it? When's the PLG? Why are you, what are you waiting on? And the product's mm-hmm. ready to just go. And at least so far, we've sort of said to ourselves, we, we feel we need to test with bigger orgs before we do that. Maybe we're mm-hmm. wrong. Maybe maybe we should just launch it now. I, I, this is a conversation mm-hmm. we have internally. Yeah. Uh, w- one thing I've seen a lot of uh, BB SaaS do that incorporate a freemium or a product-led growth motion is that they really just use a, they use a free plan or a freemium to just onboard a high volume of users so that they can get the data. So if yeah. Your, if your position is it's all it's going to be all about data, then you need you need big data sets and you need to achieve that quickly. And you can do that with a big freemium base. 
Yeah, and then, you're, you, and then use that to your paying customers. You're, you're spot on. You, you are making the, you're absolutely making the case for like, there's no reason to wait, just go. And mm-hmm. I think you're, I think you're spot on. And, and as I say, this, this notion of waiting, it's, it's, we're talking a matter of months. We're not talking much more than that. So I think it's a question mm-hmm. of, is it a quarter away? Is it two quarters away? But you're absolutely right. Like there's clearly just value just in terms of, you know, learning about the onboard and how well the onboard works or does not work to say nothing of data sets as people start using it and understanding, you know, uh, what it's unlocking or what it's not. So it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's absolutely true. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I, I don't know enough about the product that maybe, maybe you just can't assume that uh, measurable productivity gains that are, that are documented with small teams would translate to big teams. And maybe, maybe that I- just doesn't, I, no, I think it does. I actually think they're they're I think it's 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 degrees versus versus wild differences, right? I mean, candidly, okay. what a ten person team cares about cares about if, if you're you know really truly performance oriented, the same thing a hundred person team cares about. Mm-hmm. It's just the ease or difficulty with which you can answer those questions. Ten people co located, it's obviously a different ball game than a hundred people that are spread around the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, but but at core, the problems are the same, and I think the data fundamentally is the same. Back to the idea of ideas turning into software. That's still the fundamental aim and understanding how well you're doing that is still the fundamental aim. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's for us, it's probably more a matter of if we can get those larger customers engaged using it, there is going to mm-hmm. be uh, in, invariably, inevitably more feature sets and hardening that they're going to raise that we would like to solve for now versus mm-hmm. trying to solve for those feature sets when we've already got 500, 1,000, 1,500, whatever that first burst of kind of, uh, of P, you know freemium users is. So I think yeah. we're our feeling is let's really try to make sure we've ring fenced hardcore on those those essential features those foundational mm-hmm. features uh, before maybe lots and lots of folks come in and and have other stuff they want. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is you know as you can tell by the way I'm talking about this is sort of a, a living decision on our side um, and maybe not uncommon to us mm-hmm. and, and other other startups. Yeah, I'm curious now, uh, Brad. What kind of flows are you seeing into the uh, the website now? It just is a get access call to action. It's pretty, so we, we have not done, well, I was, I guess not a hundred percent true. I think we started our first, we started a, an experimental, very small LinkedIn campaign, I think last mm-hmm. week, but okay. that small experimental campaign, I think it's a hundred bucks a day or something like that is the first of any kind of marketing we've done outside of announcing that we exist as an organization. Mm-hmm. So we probably see, I don't know, a couple, three signups a day about on that, okay. on that rate. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, as you can imagine, we've deliberately not done anything growth oriented because again, you, you may have a reaction here, but my own instinct is like, well, I, I don't want to, you know, pay and do a lot of tactics that drive traffic to a wait list. Cause I'm afraid you sort of mm-hmm. lose, the, lose the momentum of the person who was yeah. interested. Now they're like, ah, I'm stuck on this wait list. And I forgot even what I signed up for. So yeah. our current thinking is that we would hold off on doing much in the way of true hardcore demand gen until we are truly if not at GA, then, you know, GA is sort of like a, you know, weeks away kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said all that, the, the reason I was keen to at least start dipping a toe in some of the stuff that we've started to do is I also don't want to wait to start learning the lessons, right? I need mm-hmm. to start learning lessons about, okay, that content, uh, like, you know, interested people and we saw what, clicks through that. Yeah, this what resonates? Mm-hmm. We, we need some level of experimentation and some level of foundation uh, in advance of saying, great, we're ready to go. Because mm-hmm. as you know, better than anyone, it's not a light switch, right? <laughs> you don't just yeah. say, great, we're ready for growth. And then you expect growth. 
So how are you handling those uh, access requests now? Are you are you vetting them and deciding who, who should be let in? And, and we, then how does do, that onboarding work? Yeah, we do exactly that. We, we I mean, question number one, of course, is it, is it an identifiable person? We're just working off email. So is, mm-hmm. is it actually like an identifiable email? That's, that's a driver as to whether we're going to engage. Uh, mm-hmm. And then another driver, as you would expect, is are they in our, our ideal cross, customer profile, right? Is their mm-hmm. sort of level and their role fit? who we think is, are the folks that we need to be engaging with. And if the answer to both those questions is yes, then you get an email from me. Uh, it's an actual email for me, <laughs> basically right. saying, saw your sign up, you know, mm-hmm. quick recap again of what Socratic is in case they're like, who the hell is Socratic? Uh, and then it's a, and then it's honestly, it's not, it's a, a, an invitation to have a conversation. It's just like, would love to show you the app and give you access, but it's, it's um, whatever you want to say. It's a sort of a, it's a hands-on white glove kind of thing that we're trying mm-hmm. to do. Part of that is tactical. We have not yet built onboarding into the app, so we don't want to just sort of throw it at someone. Mm-hmm. But part of it is also just we're still in that state of we're trying to learn who are our users, what are the things they respond well to, et cetera. So that's that's mm-hmm. what that motion looks like right now. Gotcha. And what kind of what kind of business model or pricing model are you envisioning? Is it uh, is monthly annual subscription, and, and what kind of will it be value based pricing or I- something else? I think it will be. I think, you know, this is, this again is a, is a sort of a, a living, a living question for us, but I think, you know, a, a, here again, uh, I think it's an advantage is if you're going into a mature, largely commoditized space, there's obviously pricing levels that have already been set. So there's mm-hmm. not a ton necessarily of head scratching you're going to do over like, well, what should our product cost? It's like the market has already sort of set yeah. a range. What I think is interesting for us to consider is in most, in, in most, maybe all uh, of the pricing pages we've looked at of other tools, they do tend to be user-based, meaning yeah, mm-hmm. fewer than 10 yeah, users is free and 10 to, you know, once you go up from there, based on users, you're going to pay more. I think mm-hmm. for us, we, we're, we're interested, <laughs> none of this is set, but I think we're interested in a world in which we're like not really driven by how many users. And because mm-hmm. our offering is really about the data that we're unlocking, the productivity data, maybe that's the mm-hmm. gating factor. Right. Like just, mm-hmm. I'm just making this up as we talk, but you can imagine maybe the free plan will let you see the trends in your organization over the last two weeks. Um, and that's it. Right. But if you want to mm-hmm. see the last quarter or the last year or whatever, you're talking mm-hmm. about a higher plan, but okay. it's not driven on how many people are actually in the platform. It's really just driven by what's the level of data and data sets you would like to have access to. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. So this is what we're exploring. I, I don't know if well, you have. Yeah. Any- I mean, that's that's fascinating because you're actually taking I mean you're going into an established category and you're, and you're innovating inside of the pricing the pricing model itself if if you go that route if you decide to I think the, charge the on the data instead of the usage yeah, that's right. I think the opportunity we have, this is a point my co-founder has made, and I totally agree with. I, I think the opportunity we have is that at the end of the day, if we're right about this data being enlightening to organizations that are otherwise largely working in the dark today, if we're right about that then it doesn't make sense to limit all the various flavors of data we reveal, right? Because if we do that, we're just leaving it to their imagination as to like what we can unlock for them. So I think you almost want to say, I mean, again, this is this is provisional, but I think you also want to say, hey, we'll let you see every insight that we can unlock. We'll give you all those insights, but we'll gate, you know, how much or how much time back of those insights that, mm-hmm. that you can show. And again, you may have listeners who work in analytics products, and maybe this is tried and true. I'm not, I'm sort of oblivious of that space, I'm afraid to say, but but I think that is more interesting to us because at least then, whether you're on the free plan or not, you have a sense of the full range of what this product can do. 
And then it's just mm-hmm. up to you to say, ah, I hate that. You we know, we, we want to look back how, further. Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I want to see how our, our speed is changing, I can only see over the last two weeks. I want to see the last month mm-hmm. or the last quarter. And hopefully yeah. that's the way, that's the impetus to, to maybe pay for a plan. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you give me your reaction because this is provisional on our side. But my first thought was was to just play by the rules that have already been set. But I love that I love that you're flipping it on its head there and um, pricing a a software task management as if it's an analytics tool, and uh, that itself is really innovative and cool. And I think people I mean, people are going to really appreciate that as well because I think they can grow their teams on it without worrying. I think there's a lot of I don't know maybe friction or stress sometimes around that I uh, I. I want to know what I'm going to pay. If, if I want to onboard more and more users, I don't want these costs to just escalate well, well, exactly out of control. Right. That's, mm-hmm. that's, of course, a big part. And then again, if I go back to the sort of like data invisibility thing, we've already had this just with our current user base. Folks saying, look, you know, I've got cohorts on the executive side that would like to look at some of the views you have. They're not using Socratic. They're not mm-hmm. building tasks and defining work and running sprints. They're not doing any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But they care about the big picture. And you have yeah. some big picture views, and I don't want to have to pay for a seat for them to access it. And to us, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. But yeah, those are you, those are the guys that are approving the the headcount for the exactly. engineers. How many new headcounts are? Mm-hmm. And it would be a unfruitful form of friction for us to be like, no, sorry, you have to pay, right? Like mm-hmm. I think there's fruitful friction in terms of like getting someone to pay, and they're sort of unfruitful and just like you're just being difficult to work with. Like, why are you making my job hard here? <laughs> that yeah. does be an example of just making people's jobs hard. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that's just brewing in my mind, which is, I mean, when I think about just coming in with, with a better mousetrap is to, to to try to carve out market share immediately from the disgruntled users of Jira and, and Trello. And I, um, as we were chatting here, I just pulled up, uh, I just did a, some quick keyword research into keywords that are either starting with uh, Jira alternative or Jira versus. And there are, there's about 20,000 searches in the U.S. alone per month that conform to that, uh, to that structure, Jira alternative or Jira versus. Obviously I love where you're going with this Paris. And I'm, I'm smiling because as I talked about these experimental things we want to do, you just named the next experiment we want to run, which is, I sort of said, we've got this small experimental awareness campaign that we're trying it in LinkedIn to evaluate, you know, how well yeah. does that channel work and blah, blah, blah. Hmm. The next thing I want to try is a very small experimental acquisition campaign um, predicated exactly around the search terms you're talking about. And obviously what I'm keen to discover and to learn is uh, really we haven't done anything today that's been intent-based, right? If, if, if you're using Socratic today, it's candidly because I reached out to you, right? Mm-hmm. I sent you a cold email because I looked at your profile and it looked maybe like you might fit into our this ideal customer profile we've talked about. Mm-hmm. And you were good enough to say, yeah, this is a problem and I want to talk. Like that's that that describes almost every, well, maybe actually maybe one of our design partners was inbound, but that's the rarity. It's mm-hmm. by far been the outreach and just, just the cold, right? No intent, mm-hmm. just like this email lands in your inbox. Obviously, where we want to go, I mean, inbound is, is, is a no-brainer, but, but I would like to experiment with, with what you're describing, which is like knowing somebody already has some level of intent, how do we compare against all the other folks that they would look at as an alternative? Um, yeah. So, I, I, yes, you're, you're, you're spot on with, with the, with yeah, the I mean, kind of- I think we can, we can roughly conclude in, in just in one or two minutes of research that there are approximately 20,000 disgruntled Jira users every right. month that are, right. that are telling Google that they're disgruntled. And some, and that, some, 
Keyword. And then the question becomes, how many of them are interested in our story versus whatever other story that people yeah. have been paid now, to these tell? Are not, I don't know. Let's say 10% of that's your ICP, but that's still 2,000. Uh, this, so, this is, yes, yeah. exactly. This is, this yeah. is where we feel the opportunity is for sure. Uh, there are lots yeah. of people that are running from Jira like it's a burning building. Uh, and we, we only need to save a few of them to have a real business. <laughs> that's great. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I can do the same with Asana and Trello and the rest. But um, no, I, I, I do believe that that, ha- that is a test that you're going to need to run because you're running LinkedIn, which I, I see as a middle of the funnel. Uh, I wouldn't say it's awareness building necessarily, but um, you're ac- if you're looking at acquisition costs, we, we usually think about working our way from the bottom of the funnel up because oh, we're the, okay. you know, the lowest hanging fruit and the highest intent is at the bottom of the funnel where people will be actively looking to switch from your competitors yep. because, of, because of a very clear pain point that you can solve. Yeah, and you get in front of them. You get in front of them right at the right time, and it's it's relatively high conversion rate, and it's a, a relatively low acquisition cost, and it's also a fast sales cycle because they they may already have a timeline and a budget to switch, um, and then you you know hopefully you reap the ROI from that, and then reinvest that ROI back up to the middle of the funnel and then the top. Because if all you do is squeeze every every drop of of juice out of the bottom of the funnel. At some point, you'll plateau, and you need to invest in opening up the the funnel. So, it makes, that's usually the stage one is is just go to the go to the bottom and try to pick off the low hanging fruit. It makes perfect. Make sense. Make that profitable, and then reinvest that up into um, with I with more content into let's say awareness, LinkedIn, and uh, and then videos. Um, I think that that to me sounds to be the the route. I think that's great. Take. I like that as a methodology. Tell me, tell me, say, say a word. Maybe we're at the end here, but say a word about um, LinkedIn being more mid funnel than top funnel. Mm-hmm. I think that's what you said, unless I missed. Yeah, it is. I generally think that that LinkedIn allows you to target, unlike any other channel, it allows you to really laser target people by their role in the organization, uh, even by their job title. And for for targeting engineers, I, I don't think there's a better way to target engineers and to get in front of them. Now, only a small portion of those people, though, will be actively in market to switch their task management tools, yep. and that's where search comes in. So, we, I, I generally think that LinkedIn is is mid funnel because you have a you have a high quality audience that is tuned in. Yeah. Um, there there are degrees of awareness of a pain point. Some have you know very light awareness of a pain point. Others may have a heavy one. Um, but you, you can make your brand aware such that you can get more people to either start to, to search for your brand or maybe create an unconscious brand bias when they do other types of searches that, oh, there's Socratic. I've seen them somewhere. Maybe it was a LinkedIn post. So I think it's a great compliment for, um, for building your brand and, and, uh, and establishing thought leadership around this concept that you said that, produ- that, that um, the productivity gains now from the, the, the classic methods from the last 10 years are going to be incremental. In the next 10 years, it's going to be about data, challenging those people to start thinking differently, which then leads them to start searching and, and scratching those itches. And that, then you'll, you'll acquire them through search, but you're going to generate more uh, searches and brand bias from the LinkedIn activity. So it goes hand in hand, I believe. Makes um, sense. But if, you, if you're early on with a limited budget and limited resources, like I'm sure that you are. Um, yeah. There are a lot, you know, there are about 20,000 people looking to get out of Jira every month. And it's pretty clear that they're typing that into Google. And, um, you know, and, and probably there's a fairly significant chunk that would match your ICP. I will, uh, I will, I like the thinking. I'll, I'll, I'll email you in a month or two once I have some data and I'll, uh, yeah, cool. I'll, I'll tell you how many of them we were able to, to pick off. Yeah, great. Well, 
Well, look, Brad, this has been great. Um, we probably should wrap up and I'll let you get on with your day. But is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you feel would be helpful for our no, audience? I think it's been, I've enjoyed the conversation, Paris. Appreciate you taking the time. And it's, Same it's, here. Good, it's good to bat this stuff around. Yeah. So where can people find you, Brad, online? We're socraticworks.com. Uh, please sign up. I promise I will look at your sign up and, uh, and, uh, you'll probably get an email from me. Excellent. Well, good luck. We're looking forward to keeping, uh, keeping up with your journey and it's been a great conversation. Thanks for taking the time. Enjoyed it. Thanks Paris. Thanks. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about SaaS growth marketing, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P, dot online. Have a great day.